Good morning, everybody. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We are so glad to see you here today. We're going to go ahead and get started with some worship. So if you'd like to and you're able to stand, you're more than welcome.
Church, you may be seated. My name is Ryan Sylvia. I am the director of youth ministries here at La Jolla Community Church, and I just want to welcome you all to our wonderful service this morning. We thank you all for choosing La Jolla Community Church as your place to worship. Well, I would love to bring everybody's attention, along with your little communion cups. We got fancy new ones today. Uh, you should have received one of these wonderful little bulletins. If you notice, right in the middle, that bad boy will fold right in half. I can do it. And tears right off this first half. We hope you take home. Invite somebody to church. Let them know that we've got a wonderful congregation here that we're excited to invite them to. Um, let them know of our wonderful worship times, which are written here on the back. Let them know about brunch and conversations. We would love to have some wonderful new people come in and join us. So please take this top half home. I don't want to see any laying around on the ground. I will be personally offended if I see any on the ground. So please take them home or put them at the bottom of the trash can so I won't see it. Um, but either way, please take this top half home. Invite somebody that you love to church. This bottom half hour is for you guys. If you notice, this first side says get connected with us. This is our connect card. This is how we get you engaged, plugged in, in some of the wonderful, amazing events that we've got going on here at La Jolla Community Church. This week, we had Ash Wednesday and our board game extravaganza. If you missed out on those, make sure you fill out this card so we can get you plugged in and engaged in some of the awesome stuff we've got going on for Easter coming up. And then on the other side, we have our prayer card. This, we at La Jolla Community Church believe in the power of prayer. Every single week, I'm a part of a prayer team that prays individually over every single prayer card that gets submitted. If you've got something difficult going on in your life, maybe you need a little financial provision, your emotional tank has run out this week, your newsfeed has just sucked the life out of you, take a moment, please, write down what you need prayer for. Let us know how we can support you. Let us know how we can love on you. Let us know how we can encourage and love you. So please, 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 take a moment, fill this out, and then on your way out, you can drop off your prayer and connect card in the uh, box mounted on the wall, as well as your offering envelope, which can be placed in that same box as well. Well, we thank you again so much for joining us, and with that, I'm going to invite Pastor Steve up to lead us in a message. Thank you so much. feeling that somebody uh, uh, stole either the country you're living in, the world you're living in, the generation you're living in. I mean, depending on where you are, you know, if you're 16, you're thinking, what are those rotten boomers do with my world, you know, the, you know and, or if you're on the other end of it, you're saying, what happened? Just when I thought it was all mine, somebody took it, you know. Um, I got my act together, now I forgot where I put it. Apparently, it's not coming back. It's this crazy, crazy world. You feel like a stranger in a strange land, right? Now, if you're of a certain age, you'd think, oh, stranger in a strange land, Robert Heinlein. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that book, it was a big book. Oh, stranger in a strange land, that was Leon Russell. Yeah, he wrote that song, too. Am I, is this thing on? Well, I put it on. It's on. See the little lights on. Oh, no. <laughs> Let me turn it up. I'll turn it up just like, <laughs> what do you want me to do? 
All right. Can you hear me now? Okay. As I was saying, where are we? <laughs> Sunday, isn't it? Oh, gosh. Yeah, so anyway, stranger in a strange land. That phrase comes from Moses naming his son. Uh, he, he, you know, he grew up in Egypt, where it was awesome. And then it became not welcoming to him. And he moved out to the desert. Many people do. And then at some point, you know, he's building a family and he says, I feel so out of place. Uh, this is not the world I grew up in, not the world I expected to be managing someday. He's managing sheep out in the desert when he thought he'd be managing Pharaoh's kingdom. And so he named his son Gershom. Uh, it, it's, it was a, a, a name that sounded close enough to the Hebrew word for stranger. I'm a stranger in a strange land. Uh, Peter picks this up uh, in his first letter. He says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, as strangers and people out of your normal routine, out, out of the pattern that you're finding so much comfort and meaning in, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Kind of play on words, right? Exiles are usually exiles because they've been involved in something like a war. Some massive conflict that has disrupted the world they live in. Um, you know, maybe you, you grew up in a family where there was massive disruptions. Years ago, I used to do this. Uh, we had this. Um, we we're part of a thing. It was called a divorce recovery workshop, and up in Orange County, we had fourteen thousand adults go through this thing, uh, and and hundreds and hundreds of children and 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 youth. And so, in the youth component, we would have them do um, <clears throat> a kind of a a recreation of their family. You say, so what was your family like before your parents got divorced? And kids would act out. Okay, you're going to be my mom, you're going to be my dad, and, and you're going to be me, and, and this is what it looked like. And, and, and then they'd say, and you, we'd say, ah, oh, wow, what does it look like now? And then they, they'd have kids play those parts. Oh, you're the other woman, you're the other man, you're the whatever it was. And then they, we'd say, what would you like to see it look like in the future? Because they'd been through a war zone. They were, they were kids. They were teenagers with really functional PTSD. And we knew if we didn't break into that and help them see that there's a whole new way of framing their life, all the predictable things that are predictable would happen. And so Peter's saying, you've been disrupted. Uh, and so, look, don't lose your bearings. Abstain from sinful desires. You're going to be wanting to act out in all kinds of ways for, for the anger and the grief and the loss that you're experiencing. We all know how that works. The person says, no, I'm fine. And then they put their fist through a wall, you know, uh, or they do something else impulsive. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. It's hard to do when you feel like uh, your world is upside down. I don't know if any of you are guitar players uh, or, or like country music. Uh, country music is three chords and a very big problem, and that's what a country song is. Um, a fellow named Merle Travis, who lived in the last century, created the Travis Pick. If you're a guitar player, you know what a Travis Pick is. Uh, he had a friend that he influenced named Leo Fender. Uh, Travis, uh, um, Merle Travis grew up in Appalachia, and uh, in, in the poorest part of Kentucky, and it was so dismal, uh, he found lots of inspiration. But he wrote this great song that lots of other artists have done it. And the, the, verse, the, the words go like this. I am a pilgrim and a stranger traveling through this wearisome land. Now, if you know this song, if you remember when the birds did it or if you've heard Travis do it, you're already singing it in your head. Please don't sing it out loud. Okay. No lighters doing this kind of thing. You know, it's not a concert. He says, I've got a home in that yonder city, good Lord, and it's not not made by hand. That's sort of a lament. It's not sort of a lament, that is a lament. And so what we're talking about, what we've been talking about in these last 1,500 years together, as we've been going through the Old Testament, and this is the last installation of that in this approximately 1,500 years spread. Uh, we started at the beginning when everything was awesome for about 10 minutes, and it's been in constant decline since then. It's been 1,500 years of misery and disruption. Thank you for bearing with me in all that. But there have been some bright lights along the way, right? Inspiring stories, incredible promises made, prophecies given. Uh, last week we talked about judges and priests, uh, I mean the prophets and priests, and we realized, oh my gosh, there's rotten priests and, and rotten prophets, and there's phenomenal priests and phenomenal prophets. 
and what they predicted, what they, what they were describing, the condition of the people, and, and hey, this is where it's going to go. If somebody doesn't intervene, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, it won't go well with you. And so now what we're seeing here is the aftermath of exile and the return to something that looks like the new normal. So that's where we're going today. Uh, exile moves us to lament and pour our hearts out in grief and loss. Uh, in, a, in a culture that really wants to be upbeat a lot, we sort of um, avoid lament. Hey, don't be whining and moaning unless we institutionalize it. And then what we do is my lament is bigger than yours. And, and the, the official term for that is called intersectionality. If you, if you start talking about your, your claim to victimhood, you say, well, this is why I'm a victim. Oh, you think that's a victim? Let me tell you. And you start piling up all the components to make yourself a bigger victim. And so we fall into that, but we don't want to actually look like we're whining and moaning. And so the problem is we avoid authentic grief and loss. Grief, as you know, is horrible to go through. Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had the best of intentions when she said, oh, there's some simple steps. You know, denial, avoidance, etc. And finally you get to acceptance. And you sounded, the way it was written, she didn't mean it this way, she doesn't think of it this way, but the way it came across was, hey, in a week or two, you're good to go. You can accept it and move on. Well, of course, what we know is that grief and loss and lament goes through cycles. So in this season of your life, you're dealing with this denial and anger and depression and acceptance. And you go, okay, I think I've come to a place I can move on. And then you get to this new place in your life. You go, oh, my, this is going to happen and they won't be here or this is not going to, oh, no. And you go through the cycle again. And yes, the intensity of, of grief does diminish over time, but the reality of loss stays with you. If somebody knocks your tooth out, it hurts for a while. Eventually the pain goes away, but the tooth does not come back, unless you're four. You got a big gap, and somebody goes, wow, what was that about? The scar goes away. I, I, I had a shoulder surgery when our kids were dinky, dinky, dinky little. We had one kid at the time, one baby, and I had shoulder surgery, and um, it was really, you know, a pretty simple procedure to fix a shoulder. And so uh, when I was, I'd be playing with the kids, if I did have my shirt on, besides saying, this is incredible muscles on my dad, you know, they would, they would say, dad, what's that scar right here? And you can't see it. Let me show you. No, I won't show you. Um, you can't see it now. But I had this, for a long time, this gnarly scar, because back then you had to open it up to do it. And so when our daughter, Lauren, first said, daddy, how did you get that scar? I go, well, your uncle Scott did that to me with a knife. Uncle Scott? Yes, he did. And she says, hey, wait, isn't he a surgeon? Yes, he is. <laughs> and I was under anesthesia at the time. And I thanked him profusely that I could have my full range of motion back, right? The scar doesn't hurt, but you go, oh, that's right. That reminds me. This is what lament is about. And lament is always a part of exile. Now, you can be internally exiled or externally exiled. Uh, there are internally displaced people's camps around the world. Right now, there's a big one gathering in Poland where people who didn't intend to be there are now an instant community exiled from their land, but internally exiled because they're, they're, they're kind of next door, but they can't go home. Uh, if you drive down to Point Loma and uh, you drive along <clears throat> that street that gets you, I think it's Enterprise or something like that, it gets you down to Walter Anderson's nursery, and the entire thing is a parade of tents. It's nothing but tents and stuff that's been collected by streetless, I mean homeless people on the street. And every once in a while it goes away and then it comes back in full force. These are people in constant lament. They're in exile. Uh, if you have had a loved one die, you are in a sense of exile. You've been untethered and cut loose from what was the normal pattern. You might be highly functional, but, and that person might have been somebody under your care even, but now all of a sudden there's this gap, and, you, and you're, you're, you're trying to process it. So exile moves us to lament and pour out our hearts in grief and loss. Can you imagine what it's like to be a Ukrainian right now? They are in full-on lament, whether there's internally exiled right now, wondering if their town's going to be the next one bombed out of existence, or they're on their way to the border, or they're now in that new community that's hopefully, in their mind, temporary. 
<clears throat> if, you, if you can understand what that looks like and that, what that might feel like to have small kids in tow crying or whining, where's daddy? When can we go home? Why are we doing this? Who are those mean people? Why doesn't somebody do something? And you as the, as the 24-year-old mother with all your stuff and maybe even a dog with you are trying to explain it and you can't even deal with your own emotions. Now let's just say you get to that new place and, or that place that you've been hunkering down is now overtaken by these people who are trying to destroy you. And they say, hey, you, you, you Ukrainians have a lot of great music. Let's hear one of your really happy songs. Sing one of those happy Ukrainian songs you were singing like three weeks ago. And you just wouldn't have it in you, would you? Then maybe you can relate to Psalm 137. We don't have a slide, but uh, we're getting to Psalm 1. But I want to give you a ramp up to Psalm 1. So here's Psalm 137 in the full throes of exile. The psalm writer says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, those trees that thrive next to water, instead of being a beautiful place that inspires me to be creative, there on the poplars we hung our harps. We put them up. Who needs it? For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, hey, sing us one of those songs of Zion. We'd love to hear one of those. I'm sure you'd love to sing it. Such a happy place. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land, a strange land? And if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, it is my highest joy, but right now I'm in full-throated full throated lament and grief and loss in exile. And meanwhile, there's some false prophets saying to them, oh, it's going to be just a long weekend, you'll be back soon. And the Lord said, Jeremiah, tell them they'll be here for a generation or more. And tell them to plant gardens, to start families, to bless the city. So the events of the last week remind us why Jesus is the hope of the world. Because when we put people in charge of the world at any level, for any length of time, bad things happen. It just goes that way. It's the old joke about, not joke, but the, the observation about family wealth. The first generation works really hard to earn it. The second generation tries to manage it, and the third generation squanders it. Uh, because Americans are enterprising, we've moved that up that the second generation has now learned how to squander it. And sometimes at the end of the first generation, they're thinking, hey, i got some time to squander. But you give people enough power and affluence long enough and not have something at their core, it always goes very wrong. Very, very wrong. All those cliches about Hollywood or about Wall Street, they're all cliches that we just shake our head over and go, what? what? What's in the water there? Nothing. It's just that there's nothing in here. And if there's nothing in here, then we lament not just our loss, but we lament the fact that there's nothing to replace that. And so here's Psalm 1. As the people came out of exile, and they started to collect themselves uh, in the new land. We'll get to that in a moment. But they said, let's organize all these psalms that King David has written and others have written. Let's organize them into, into books, four books, four sections, four collections. And the first one, they said, let's start with the first two most important psalms that would help everybody understand the whole collection, all 150 of them. And so you see in, the, in this first section of psalms, 41 psalms, I think it is, gathered in one collection, the first two, one and two, speak to how we have a heart for God and, and, and what kind of world we live in. So we're going to talk about Psalm 1 now. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rail against God? But this one is about where does this, this problem come from? It comes from within us. And that's where the solution comes from, uh, from God through us. So here it is. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Good first step. Uh, there's a company, a couple of young guys from Stanford started a company, and they, their motto as they started it was, do no evil. And Google has forgotten that motto, apparently, in many ways, but the young guys are now old guys going, well, I didn't really mean it. I mean, I said it, but... Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. 
one of the prophets during this time of, of going into exile and exile was Micah. And Micah, um, his famous, famous in Hebrew, this great phrase, adam He has told you, O man, what is good. Uh, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. So the, the, the blessed one does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, that is, opposed to God's wisdom and ways. Or sit in the company of mockers, exalting oneself above God and other people. You see the zero-sum mentality that has created a situation like we see in Ukraine. I've got to win, and you've got to lose. It's not just that I have to win. That wouldn't be good enough. I have to win, and you have to lose. Uh, That's what it looks like uh, to be in the company of mockers. Because if I can't mock you, I haven't really achieved anything. I've got to say, hey, sing that song again, that Ukrainian one that's so beautiful. Almost made me cry. It was so, so inspiring. And then he, he turns the corner. He says, but the blessed is, is the one who finds their delight in the law of the Lord, who understands that I can only be satisfied by God's righteousness. All my aspirations, if they're not rooted in a hunger and thirst for righteousness, are going to destroy me. Uh, your first day of heroin is your best day of heroin. Your first day of that exciting affair is, is the best day of that affair. The first day of anything that is not righteous is the best day, and it's all downhill from there, right? I can only be satisfied in God's righteousness. This, this is the secret of delighting oneself in the law of God. Why? Because if you just read the law over and over again, that can be mindless. Uh, one time I was in a really neat place called uh, Mount Athos, and it, it, it's, uh, it's a community that looks like Big Sur with these massive, beautiful monasteries built on them, built for like hundreds, and, and in some cases thousands of monks. It's the center to this day of Byzantium. And uh, uh, it's just men, and you have to be a man to go there. And the port that you have to go to to get there is called Uranopolis, the, si- the heavenly city. And, and you can get permission as a pilgrim um, to, to walk through this beautiful place. So I did that for a few days. And, and I kept meeting these monks who would, who would just sort of, uh, in, <clears throat> in a way, I don't may think they intended it, but they would just kind of want to out-monk each other. And they'd say, oh, yes, well, you know, I was up all night praying to Jesus, uh, um, something like, Jesu Christo Sassame, Jesu Christo Sassame, Jesus Christ save me. And there's another version of the Jesus prayer, variations on it. And so finally I met this, this guy who was sort of the, he was the abbot of one of the monasteries called Savronikita. And he ended up becoming, I learned later, I didn't know anything at the time, but I learned later he was a major spiritual influence. He's like the Billy Graham of Mount Athos and the Greek Orthodox Church. And he said, do you have any questions about what you've seen? And I said, yeah. What's with the, hey, I prayed the Jesus prayer all night. And then they're rude to each other. They're kind of diffident toward the other monks. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's a big problem. It's called human nature. That we can go through the motions of anything. And until it's in our heart, you can stay up all night you want. But if it's not your heart that's connected to God all night, it's to no avail. This is the human dilemma. The most beautiful, exquisite expression of, Ro- of Russian culture is built right where you can see it on the Seine, in the, right in the heart of Paris. It's the most exquisite, jewel-like Russian Orthodox Church. It's got a white gold dome. It's insanely expensive. It was built by Vladimir Putin. And so you can hide, be- evil can hide behind religiosity, obviously. We know that. That's not new. But you see, that's why when we think about having a delight in the law of the Lord. That's why when the Pharisees, who started so well, got so sideways with themselves and with God, Jesus said, you're like whitewashed graves. You're like a tomb that somebody thought, I'll clean this thing up and just painted it white. You're still filled with dead bones. It's a, it's a symbol of death, not life. And so he says, and who meditates on his law day and night will be blessed. That is pondering over God's word in every part of life, saying, gosh, I wonder what God would do, want me to do here. It's not saying God is anti-this or anti-that. It's that God is pro-everything that glorifies Him and blesses you. If He is not glorified, you cannot be blessed. If you want to be blessed, God must be glorified. Not as some obsequious, oh, you're so great, you're awesome. No, but it's more like, I recognize you are the source of life. And it's you that I turn. 
And when I turn from you, I look at the world that I live in, I, I keep saying, Lord, what about here? What do you think about this? Where do you go here? So, so literally, literally, meditating means pondering, reflecting on. You know, somebody has said it's like chewing the cud, a cow does, to digest. So pondering is saying, yeah, okay, what about this situation? I feel like killing this guy. What should I do? Oh, that's why Jesus said I should probably forgive. Oh, here, this is a really big need, but it's my money. And they probably didn't work hard enough, and I don't know, maybe they didn't do their homework in eighth grade. I don't know, I'm not going to help. Yeah, but maybe you're supposed to be compassionate in spite of that. So you see where this goes. Pondering, pondering, pondering. I don't know. Am I going to vote this or that? Well, why don't you ponder the, the, the issues and say what clo- most closely aligns with who you are. Don't vote a ticket, and especially don't start a Christian party. That's a, that's a disaster. Why? Because then you say it's not about him anymore. It's about the politics of who I want him to be to empower me to do what I want to do. You see where this goes. And so to meditate on the law day and night is simply pondering over God's word in a thoughtful manner that allows you to say, Holy Spirit, correct me, lead me, guide me, deepen me, give me wisdom and understanding. And we discuss it with brothers and sisters. Hey, what do you think about that? Oh, I think you're right about this. However, I think the way you're applying it, it's a little funky. Yeah, you're right. It is. I want you to pray for me as I, as I try to align myself properly with God. You see how this builds community? And so what's that, what does that blessed person go? What does it look like in a blessed person's life? First of all, they don't walk through the streets going, yo, blessed. Just call me Big B for short. I love it when you go to Africa. So many of the names of people are, are dr- driven by faith. And they'll name their barbershop or their beauty parlor, Blessed's Beauty Parlor, Beloved's Barbershop. Literally, you see it's in every village you go to. And it's, it's endearing. You go, I want to go over there. If she's beloved, I'm going to have her cut my hair. You know? um, but we don't lead like that. <clears throat> no, it's like this. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. They're rooted. They're being nourished. They're fruitful. They're thriving in the Lord. And this experience is what yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Yeah, but what if a poor person is doing this and they're still poor? Well, they're probably as, as prosperous as they could possibly hope to be in the circumstances that they're living in. We're not making this, we're not, we're not um, romanticizing poverty or, or, or a disrupted life or being in a stranger in a strange land. We're saying, you know what, if you want to prosper, this is where you start. Because if you can't prosper here, you're not going to prosper anywhere. When you live in the big mansion, which is not anybody's goal necessarily, but you know, um, if you live in the big mansion, I can tell you what, one of the biggest mansions on the planet is, is a like, no, $40 billion mansion that Putin built. You can, you can probably win this bet every time. I bet he will never get to retire there quietly. It won't happen. It can't happen. He just can't say, you know, hey, I'm going to hang it up. You guys take it from here. I'm going to retire to my cottage out there and uh, play James Bond. It won't happen. You see, there is no fruit in season and the leaf does wither and they cannot possibly prosper. That's a fear-based life, not a faith-based life. You're always looking over your shoulder. You don't know who you can trust. Why? Because you can trust nobody. And so not so the wicked, the psalmist says. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. They are empty husks, lacking substance. They're weightless and insubstantial. With the incredible power and, <clears throat> and evil that you see unleashed in the world, whether it's the, uh, uh, um, the, the Democratic Republic of the Congo or any place where it's just outrageously oppressed to people, the people that are creating all that drama and trauma are at, the, at their heart and, and at the center of them. They're weightless. They're insubstantial. They're small. That's why in his brilliant book, uh, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes heaven as a crack in a si- uh, hell as a crack in a sidewalk. It is so insubstantial. It's horrible, but it's nothing. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will be blown away. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. They will not have 
access to God's presence, which is the greatest punishment I can think of. Why? Because it said, I don't need your presence. I do not want your presence. Go away. But the way of the wicked then leads to destruction because they insist on going their own way. There is a way which seems right to a person, but ends in death. That's what the Proverbs say. I think that's Proverbs 14. And so this psalm is written from the perspective of exile. Uh, <clears throat> the people uh, of Judah, the first, the, fir- the, the first wave was in the end of the 8th century, 7-something uh, B.C., and that was the northern part called Israel. Isaiah was the one talking to them, hey, don't, don't, don't do what you're doing because it's not going to end well. And they went and the ten tribes disappeared. Now the second uh, captivity is coming in around uh, 786. And now this is Judah, where Jerusalem is the capital. This is the southern part of the, well, the whole country. is called Israel, right? Israel and Judah comprise Israel collectively. And so the people of Judah were exiled into Babylon. Uh, and, and because the Babylonians had taken over the Assyrians, who'd taken over the northern tribes. So it's just one regime after another. And they're there for 70 years. And there's again regime change within that. And now the Persians have overtaken the Babylonians. And they realize they have a big problem because Egypt is always powerful because Egypt is wealthy. Why? Because it's the breadbasket of the Mideast. And so they need a buffer state. And, the, and so they are an enlightened people who don't like to get into mi- micromanaging their acquired assets. And so they want a stable place where you can just be a vassal. You just pay us money, you keep it going, we're good. And so Cyrus has had a chance to understand what these people, these exiled people are like. Why? Because during this time, people like Daniel had been showing up. And other people that, that these oppressive people are saying, these are really good people. I tell you what, we need them. Um, they don't know that, but we do. And they definitely need us. So let's fund them to go back to their place and make it prosperous. Do you see where this goes? God can even use the, the maligned thinking of powers that are indifferent to him or even antagonistic toward him to achieve his purposes. And so their mission was to rebuild Jerusalem, its walls, and the temple, and to live peacefully in the land. Now, is this not an irony? This is what God's been telling them for a very long time. <laughs> and now Cyrus is, is God's person, so to speak, for having them do what he's been telling them to do. And now they eagerly want to do it. because They're saying, we're really tired of this exile thing. We're ready to move from lament to rejoicing. And so their leaders were Zerubbabel. If you can spell it, I'm so impressed. And if you can say it three times fast, I'm even more impressed. Uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel first and another wave with Ezra and Nehemiah. So here's a little kind of a mini story. I won't go into the detail of this, but Zerubbabel is the grandson of a guy named uh, Jeconiah. Jeconiah was the grandson of a guy named Josiah. Now, we talked a few weeks ago about Josiah, the only good king out of all those kings in the divided kingdoms. A spectacularly good king amidst a bunch of really evil kings. His, his predecessors were evil, and the ones that followed him were evil. And so here's Jeconiah, the evil grandson of Josiah, ends up going into captivity, and now his grandson, Zerubbabel, has a new vision for what could be. Don't you love the way God works in generations? He never leaves himself without a witness. And so Zerubbabel was tasked with being the transitional leader, restoring Jerusalem. Ezra was a priest, and Nehemiah, as you know, the story of Nehemiah, he has so much credibility with the king that the king says, I'll fund, I'll fund you going back now and give you lots of responsibility. Because he wasn't just a cupbearer of the king, he was an incredible administrator like Joseph was for Pharaoh. I'm, I'm drawing on all the 1,500 years of conversation we've been having since January. And so you have this incredible uh, team going back into Jerusalem, and it's a wasteland, and the people who are living there now aren't Jews. They don't like Jews coming back, and they're saying, hey, you're gone. It's ours. Get over it. And every once in a while, literally, they'll have to stop and say, hey, you're right. Let's ask the, 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 the home office in Persia what they want to do. And always the home office in Persia says, we love what you're doing. Keep doing it. And uh, all the local guys are like, ugh. So God is working to protect them as they come back. But having returned from 
exile, now they're asking these questions. How did we get into exile? How did that happen? How did we survive in exile? And then how do we avoid going back into some form of exile? And of course, every time they ask the question, it brings it back to the Lord. Oh, we got there by disobeying the Lord. Mm. How did that happen? Slowly, 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 quickly. What did, how did we survive there? Well, he gave us faithful prophets like Jeremiah and other leaders who were role models for us, like Daniel, like Esther. And they, they helped us to focus on the Lord in that strange land. And then therefore, as we come back, what would it take us not to get into that again? Now, out of this, later, 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 came the movement we know as the Pharisees. Why? They said, we want to get it right. But they, again, became petrified, so to speak, as in petrified wood. They became institutionalized, bureaucratized, hungry and, and comfortable with power. So by the time Jesus shows up, they're going, uh, obviously you don't know what's going on here. <laughs> he says, well, actually, I've come to fulfill all the promises you keep telling people about. Right, yeah, we'll take that for the high priest. And so it goes very badly for them. But see, at this point, they really, really want to learn from their mistakes and get it right going forward. Can you relate to this in your own life? I want to learn from my errors. I want to get it right in the present, and I want to avoid making that mistake in the future. How does that happen? It happens only ever right now. You, you and me, all of us together, are creating our future right now. We create the future one day at a time, right now. You know what? i got to tell you guys, I'm going to get in some incredibly good shape later this year. Later this year. The Janet makes the best apple pie you can even imagine. Right? So this is what happens to us. And so what we see in Psalm 1 is a picture of God's design in creating the world and us. Psalm 1 reminds the Jews and us that we were created for Eden. We were created for a place where we have this incredibly high and holy responsibility and calling from God to manage the world he's created under his sovereignty and yet in partnership with him. Not as equals, but as partners. There's a mutuality there. When you, when you have little kids or grandchildren, you're not partners in the sense that you're equals, but you're totally mutual. They bring something to the relationship, so do you. And you'd say, I can't imagine living without this relationship with my kids. Well, your kid's only four. What, what? Yeah, but they bring so much to my life. This grandchild is four. A blink ago, I had a four-year-old. Now I have a four-year-old grandchild. I love this kid. I die for this kid. That's what a mutual relationship looks like. Mutuality. We bring different things. Uh, we walk together, but we don't walk the same. Is maybe one way to think about it. And yet we're all exiles from the Garden of Eden. And yet, there's a garden in our future. We see what goes on in Revelation. This holy, heavenly city. A river runs through it for all of you fly fishermen. And it's, it's festooned with trees bearing fruit in season and out of season along that river. And the Lord himself lives in that city. It's part of this new heaven and new earth. We don't go to heaven. Heaven comes to us. We won't recognize the neighborhood once he's done with it, but this is where, where we're going. And so in the Lord, we're called to create gardens in a world desperately needing them. We're called to create little gardens, not walled gardens that we keep people out, but gardens that we invite people into. Why? Nobody can walk into a garden and not go, wow, this feels good. Do you know why people like playing golf? I can tell you emphatically, it's not because of the game itself. It's because no matter where you are playing golf, wherever you're walking is gorgeous. It's verdant, it's green, it's beautiful, there's water. It just feels good being there. You can be the worst hacker on the planet. I've met some of them. Uh, uh, Tom, uh, John, I'll call you up, Bob. No, I mean, you can be with the greatest golfer or the worst golfer, uh, the greatest fly fisherman or the worst fly fisherman, and if it's a really bad day, you say, you know what, it's just great being here. And they go, yeah, it really is. It really is, it's beautiful. This is what we're, we are, we're garden makers, you're, you're, you're in Christ cultivating a life that when people hang with you, they go, I, I don't know what it is. I just like being with you. 
They come to your house and it might not be fancy. You might not have much to offer them, but what you offer them is hospitality. And they go, I feel so welcomed here. It's just great being here. If you got a little garden on your balcony, if you got a little pot with something growing in it, it just makes everything feel more alive. Right? This is built into us by God. Built into us by God. It's a reminder of where we are and where we want to be and where we're going. And so we turn to God and reclaim what's been lost, what's been destroyed, what's been abandoned, as the people in Ukraine will do. This is a horrible chapter. It is not the final chapter. They will rebuild that place. They'll make it a garden again. And they'll look back and they say, we don't want to go through that again. And they'll be telling their grandkids and their great-grandkids, it was horrible. I can't even really talk about it much, but I'm glad we're back. We learned a lot. So every generation must turn to God, to his word, to his kingdom, even in exile. Because all of us at some point right now are living in exile. It doesn't, it's not quite right. We yearn for a better world. Why? Because we were made for a better world, as C.S. Lewis says. And we think, ah, it's a good world. But see, that's why you know how this goes. When things are going really well, you go, oh no, don't jinx it. Don't say anything. Like, it's so great, it's going so well. It couldn't be better. You go, don't say that. Why? Because we're always waiting for the proverbial shoe to drop. Why? Because that's the world we live in. But we also live in a world that says, you know, I made you for a garden. I made, I'm cultivating you to be a garden. And your future is a garden. A place that brings life and gives life because God is at the heart of it. And so God himself is the antidote to evil and alienation and exile. He calls us to himself. We're no longer in exile, but we're rather on a journey back home. Something new and beautiful is happening right now. We're not people just waiting for something to happen. We're living fully in the present saying something beautiful is happening. But it's even more beautiful what's to come. I want to leave you with this picture. I'm one of the, one of the big personalities in this exile period. And by the way, um, 12 minor prophets. If you ever heard of the minor prophets, this is the last book in the Hebrew Bible, but uh, it's like one book with 12 chapters on these prophets. These minor, so-called minor prophets, Hosea, Amos, Joel, Haggai, Obadiah, uh, Micah, uh, um, Nahum, etc. Um, Obadiah is one chapter. It's like the book of Jude in the New Testament. One chapter. Uh, I think Micah is 14. Anyway, so you have these these what they call minor prophets. Why? They're not minor in terms of their impact or what they, who they were or what they did. It's just minor because they don't have a, a book in their name. So Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel have big, giant narratives. So they're major because they take up a lot of space, but they're all important. So the minor prophets are no less important than the major prophets. They just have a different a way of, of speaking into the situation. But these 12 minor prophets, when you read those, don't skip over them. All the poetry, uh, it's just like whatever. no. Take your time and settle into it and read it because those 12 voices are telling you what happened. Nahum is telling you that after Jonah went to Nineveh and called them back from the, the abyss, a generation later they went into the abyss. Nahum was giving them that prophecy, etc. So, so powerful. So in the midst of this, Ezekiel, 20 years into the exile, has this incredible vision. And, and, and I won't give you all the, the details, but, but two parts of it. Several parts of it, but I'll give you just two parts of it. At one point, God gives me the vision of, of dead, you know, bones out in the desert. And he's looking at them, and God says, do you think those bones can come to life? And, and Ezekiel says, only you would know that. And so it, it, um, this is like cinemagraphic. All of a sudden, he hears this clattering, and, and these bones are all coming together. Oh, by the way, Ezekiel's last name is Spielberg. And so all these bones are coming together and uniting into bodies and sinews and muscles. Come, and it's just like the cinema, cinemographic thing. You're going, whoa! And they're all coming, and, and there they are. And God says, but they need the breath of life that only I can give them. He says, speak that out, Ezekiel. And so he does. And from the four winds comes the breath of life to revive those bones into people. Powerful vision. Oh, this exile isn't forever. And then another vision he has is, is in the temple of Jerusalem. He's not there. He's just gotten news that it's been destroyed and plundered. But this vision, there he is, and from the temple comes a trickle of water. And if you've been to Israel, if you're standing in the, on the Mount of Olives, which is east of, of the city, you're looking at the east face of the city. 
And it goes down into a, a, a brook, the Kidron Brook. And out of the temple, that main wall and the temple were down now the Dome of the Rock, the water is coming down there through the wall and into that little creek bed. It's a trickle. And so Ezekiel is told by God to follow it. And as he walks down toward what would be eventually, you know, 17 miles away, the Dead Sea, it, it becomes a stream, a, a, a small river, but it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Pretty soon it's a raging river. Not dangerous raging, but full and full of life. And he starts to see that there's trees sprouting up on each side of this river. And when it hits the Dead Sea, it makes the Dead Sea sweet and alive. And so that's another picture for him. This is the picture for you, wherever you are in your place of exile. This is what God is doing in you. So pay attention to the details. Pay attention to the details. It's going somewhere really, really good. So that's why when we come to this table, Holy Communion, we say, Lord, you've done something really, really good, but it looks really, really hard. The fact that on that final night with his disciples, he prayed over this bread at Passover and said, having broken it, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's the language of sacrifice. And at this dinner, they're going, wow, what does that mean? In the same manner, he took the cup and having blessed it. And this cup at the table is never touched at Passover. It represents the renewal of all things, the fulfillment of all things. So it's never touched. It's there, and nobody even acknowledges it on the Passover Seder. But he takes that cup, and he blesses it. He says, this is my blood, the new covenant given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Dead bones come to life. Parched lands come alive. This is the God who meets us in exile and brings us out of exile so that we can return to who we really are meant to be. So Lord Jesus, this is our deepest desire and hope. Not to put a happy face on evil or suffering or misfortune, the things that we make happen or happen to us, but rather to recognize, Lord, that in this fallen world, it's you alone who can rescue us and renew us. It's you who made us to be in relationship with you in that beautiful place. And now you've come to make a garden a transitional garden of sorts on the way to the full-blown version that you intended for us all along. So, Lord, we pray that as your people, uh, we can pay attention through your word, through your Holy Spirit, through the history of your people, so that we too would know how we can thrive and flourish wherever we are because you're with us. We want to be those blessed people in Psalm 1. We pray this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. Well, as you hear the music played, uh, you can receive Holy Communion. Um, again, I strongly recommend you take the bread out first from the bottom. And when you have the bread out, you can take the cap off the top and uh, sit, simply sit in the presence of God. Offer yourself to Him as we um, hear the music played and as we're led in a final praise of Him. Let's do that. I won't forget 
Let those words wash over you. Let the Holy Spirit meet you where you are, simply by saying, yes, Lord, uh, speak into my heart. Uh, steal my troubled mind. Lift up my uh, despair and anxiety and fear and give me your peace and your abiding presence. If we can pray for you in any way, for anything, for you or for anything that matters to you, go right out that door after the service and go around the corner to that lovely prayer garden. There'll be somebody who will be there to pray with you. They'll simply say, how can I pray for you? And if you don't know how to describe it, just say, I don't know. Just pray for me. Okay. And then uh, come have something to eat, um, hang out, be brave, talk to somebody you don't know. And then at 11, you hear some music, come back in here. We're going to do this thing for 45 minutes called Conversations. It's really, really fun. Uh, we get small groups and we have some questions that aren't um, overwhelming or imposing. They just give you a chance to respond to some really fun videos that we show for about five minutes and have about ten minutes of discussion. It's been very powerful doing this. We've, we've had a lot of fun with it. So if, you've, if you're new, uh, don't be shy. Come to it. If you don't like it, you can leave. Um, everybody will yell at you if you try to leave. But I mean, um, no, you just come and be part of it. It's really, really a, a, a way, great way to experience community. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, giving you everything you need, wherever you are, to walk with him in newness and fullness of life, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.